Well, if the grave could not hold him, the first implication is that we can trust him. He is alive. He's real. I told Joel in a conversation last week, if I was taking my last breath today, I would look at you and my sons and I would say to you, you can trust him because he is alive. And so this morning, that's exactly what Isaiah chapters 36 and 37 are saying to us. They're asking this question, will you functionally, not theoretically, but functionally trust in the Lord? Let me give a little context this morning. Uh, The first 35 chapters of Isaiah that we've been through are poetry and prophetic preaching. And they're hard to understand. Can you say amen? But now for today and next week in these four chapters of 35 through 39, we get to go back to good old historical narrative. You'll understand this morning. I didn't have to read it nine times to sort of figure out what was going on. And so Isaiah has been urging us for 35 chapters to trust in the Lord, not foreign gods, not chariots and horses, but trust in the Lord. And today is going to give us a real life scenario that you and I can apply that exhortation of trust to. <clears throat> the climate and context of Isaiah 36 and 37 is crucial for us to understand this. So let me take us back a little bit. We have a king of the southern kingdom. His name is Ahaz. He was wicked from day one. From the first day of his reign, he was a wicked king. He was the king that sacrificed one of his sons to pagan gods. He's the one that built high places of worship for all the pagan gods throughout Judea. We saw in Isaiah chapter 7 that God, through the prophet Isaiah, came to King Ahaz and extended him Grace and mercy, if he would quit his uh, wicked ways and follow and trust the Lord. And Ahaz said, no, thank you. I'm good. As the king of Judah, here's what he gets to watch in 22 BC, the, the Assyrian invasion. He gets to stand across the border and watch the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom and literally destroy it. The greatest national disaster of the people of God ever. He sees it. And while he's watching it, the people of God are watching their brothers and sisters get literally destroyed, killed. And they're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, they're getting destroyed for the exact same thing that our King Ahaz is doing. You're talking about feeling terrified. That's the context here. Now, this is King. My mind just went blank. I say Ezekiel. Hezekiah, I know that. I said it 900 times in the first service. This is King Hezekiah's father, Okay. Ahaz is his father. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, it records the death of Ahaz in 715 B.C. And the people must have thought, oh Lord, we're doomed now. Because they know like we know. (laughs) The apple 
doesn't fall far from the tree when it comes to sons and fathers. If Ahaz was so wicked, typically the son is going to be worse. And if the northern kingdom got destroyed for all the sins they committed, then we're next. But 2 Chronicles 29 tells us this. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Speaking of King David, that wasn't the perfect model. He wasn't the savior, but he was the model, the standard of how to lead the people of God with a contrite heart. So we see that the son is different. Hezekiah is not like Ahaz, and the author gives us a couple of clues. One is that his, the influence of his mother, her name meant Yahweh is my father, and his maternal grandfather, which name means Yahweh has remembered. And he grew up, as we need to remember, under the preaching and teaching of Isaiah himself. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Ah, this was gorgeous this week because I thought, I don't have to be like my home of origin. I can, God can flip the script. I can leave a different legacy than the one that was left me. Second Chronicles 29 and 30 records this great spiritual, and it all goes together here, records a great spiritual renewal, revival, and reformation under the leadership of Hezekiah in the southern kingdom. Here's what he did. He reopened the temple for worship. It had been closed for years. He called the priest out, these old crusty guys that were doing nothing and were buying into the wickedness of Ahaz. And he said, you get to work doing God's work. He instituted confession and repentance over what his father had done. That takes some courage. A lot of us won't even point back and say anything. He said, no, my dad was wrong. The first time in years, put yourself in this situation where their temple was splashed with the fresh, warm blood of bulls and lambs and goats for a sin offering. Atonement was made for the people's God's sins because it takes the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. It's always in that order, atonement, then forgiveness. And in 29 and 30 of 2 Chronicles, it speaks of the people of God singing praise music. For the first time in 16 years, the people of God had worshiped together. Now, can you imagine Fellowship Bible closed for 16 years and because of the governmental threat, because of a wicked king and culture, you had to worship in private and the first day the doors were open? You wouldn't be coming two out of four Sundays, folks. And it says he restores Passover and he cuts down all the altars of the high places. This is revival. Every theologian and scholar in the history of the Bible has called this real life revival and change. And so chapter 36 of Isaiah is a time 
This is this time where Judah has been experiencing 14 years of spiritual renewal and faithfulness. <laughs> when all of a sudden, literally all heck breaks loose because of a king of Assyria named Sennacherib. In 701 BC, he is swarming all over Judah like a horde of orcs from the Lord of the Rings. That's the picture. He has destroyed, seized and destroyed 46 cities in Judea. And there's one city left, Jerusalem. That's it. And that's where we pick up in Isaiah 36. So <clears throat> the first thing we see there is that Rabshakeh, the diplomat, representative from Sennacherib, taunts the people of God. Who are you going to trust? Let me read verses 1 through 3. In the first chapter 36, in the 14th year of King say that again. Say it for me. Hezekiah, I keep messing it up. I'm sorry, Hezekiah. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh to Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with, with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Isn't it sort of funny that God gave me a text with all those names? <clears throat> so, and I can't do, I remembered all the other ones, I can't do Hezekiah. <clears throat> so here's what we have. This is the setup. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sends this very slick and elite diplomat named Rabshakeh. <clears throat> he sends him to be a spokesperson to King Hezekiah. Now, some have called this the valley of decision for the reign of King Hezekiah. The meeting between Rabshakeh and Hezekiah's leadership takes place at this very familiar site. It's called Under Upper Pool to Washer's Field. Now, why is that familiar to us? If we go back to Isaiah 7, we see this is where Ahaz rejected the merciful offer of God. How about that? So now we have Washer's Field as this sort of symbol of faith under fire. So now Ahaz has rejected the offer of God. And the next generation, the son of Ahaz, Hezekiah, has a chance to redeem this. So he's going to meet at that washer's field, not a prophet of God, but an enemy of God. And his trust in God would also be tested. So Sennacherib, at the end of the day, is trying to strong arm King Hezekiah into submitting to him. Then in verses 4 through 10, well, I'll let you read on your own. You need to understand in those verses, seven times the word trust is used. This is the theme of these two chapters. In these verses of 4 through 10, <clears throat> it's an attempt of God's enemies to destroy, <clears throat> excuse me, the faith of God's king and undermine the people of God's confidence in God. 
Rabshakeh is this smooth operator. He understands the history of Judah and the political times of the day. And he really says, who are you going to trust? And his first option is Egypt. And he says, you're going to trust Egypt? You've been there and done that before. Egypt has this long history, Rabshakeh knows it, of promising high and delivering low. They never come through. Matter of fact, they'll say they'll come through, act like they'll come through, and we know from history they'll turn around and stab you in the back. So you can't trust them. And then in verse 7, he says, the heathen, this heathen Rabshakeh may understand politics, but he's a terrible theologian. He says, you can't trust in God because your dumb king, again, you can read this on your own, has destroyed all the high places of worship. Rabshakeh <laughs> thinks because Hezekiah has destroyed all the pagan places of worship that his father had built, now the people of God don't have the religious power to trust in God. He equates numbers with power. So he's smart, but he's dumb biblically. I reminded of something I saw on the this week said the New York Times reporters admitted they know nothing about Christianity. I thought well, at least one time they're telling the truth, right? <clears throat> Verses 8 through 10. And now Rabshakeh's theology gets worse. He says, I'm actually standing in your face, Hezekiah, on your doorstep about to destroy the city of Jerusalem. I've destroyed 46 other cities, and I'm standing here in your face because your God actually sent me. Hmm. When I saw that, I thought, that's exactly how the evil one, the hater of our souls, takes God's word and twists it just enough so that you and I might grab onto it to haunt us with it instead of encourage us with it. And then, verses 11 through 17. Let me read those verses. Read along with me. <clears throat> he says, Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. The language of Judah was Hebrew. And all the common people, thousands of people watching this meeting, if you would, take place, are listening. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? That's in the Bible. <laughs> a warm meal of human excrement, right? Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, which would be Hebrew, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, come out to me. Then each of you will eat 
of his own vine, each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take away, take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and <clears throat> vineyards. <clears throat> so what happens here is we have psychological warfare. <laughs> we have Assyrian propaganda. Hezekiah's representatives tell Rabshakeh to speak in this diplomatic language of Aramaic because they were trying to protect the hearts of God's people from feeling great fear and terror. But Rabshakeh doesn't uh, uh, honor that request. He gets loud and pompous and big and he shouts in the language of Hebrew so that all the common people can hear. You're doomed. You're going to die. Submit to me or you'll be eating your own dung and your own urine. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, he says. Putting your faith in God while I'm sitting on your front doorsteps with a, the largest, greatest, most powerful army in the world, the the Assyrians were known, look up history, to be the most evil people in the history of the world. Think Nineveh. They would go and capture, fight people and capture them and then bring them back and stick a dog chain through their jaw and tie them up. They would hang live people on, their, on, uh, on poles outside of their forts and watch them get pecked to death by birds. These are evil folks. And he says, you're a fool to think your God can save you. So here's my offer. I offer peace and prosperity. You get your own wine, your own fig tree, as long as you come back to me and live under slavery and live under a system where you worship our gods. Sounds appealing. Nothing, I think. <laughs> Maybe nothing like the offer of peace and prosperity to the sinful human heart to make them sell out to false gods. I'm reminded of Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter 4. He's fasted for 40 days. He's certainly vulnerable. He's 100% man, 100% God. And the evil one comes to him with a promise of peace and prosperity. He listens to the devil's words to the Messiah. Again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. There's the offer. There's the offer from Rabshakeh. There's the offer from the devil. They're the same, folks. And Jesus didn't get in this argument. He didn't think about it. He didn't say, what are my options? He quoted the promises of God to the devil. He said, you shall worship the Lord your God only. End of conversation. The devil leaves. Jesus continues. Verses 18 through 20, we see this. Hezekiah is feeding you a bill of goods, he says. Comp <laughs> Compromise with us or you'll end up stone cold dead. 
Look at all the other nations around us. You can nearly, you can nearly hear him snicker. <laughs> what God has stopped us yet? Your God is no different. Just use your brain. Look at the data. Look at the circumstances. You're done unless you come with me. Here are the people of God. And they're asking, where is God? How could this be happening? We are walking with God like never before. 14 years of renewed faithfulness, 14 years where we have this zeal in our hearts to hear the word of God and obey the word of God. And all they can see now, the people of God, is Rabshakeh. And all they can hear is a promise of peace and prosperity. They, like us, come to these crossroads, <laughs> spiritual crossroads, these valleys of decisions. And the question is, will we walk by sight or will we walk by faith? Will we sell out or will we go, go all in with God? In some ways, this is the whole Christian life. You want to define the Christian life? It's not a set of moral choices, living a moral life. It is this, a crisis of who will you and I trust? It is trust versus unbelief. That's always been, always will be the fight of God's people in the midst of a daily, moment by moment, trust or don't trust. That's the fight we're in. So our enemy is not Rapshaka, obviously, but the enemy of our souls, he designs for us to undermine our trust in the promises of God. <laughs> Let me just lay it out flat to you. Satan's ultimate goal for you and I is to destroy our confidence in the very promises of God. Not to turn you in to some crazy person, drugged out, laying in a ditch, although he wouldn't mind that. But he wants to slowly and surely erode from your heart and soul and mind your trust and confidence in God and his word. His track record is true. Monty mentioned a few weeks ago about Genesis 3. Did God really say it's been the lie from the beginning? It'll be the lie forever. And you and I believe it. But God has a different design for these valley of decisions, these crises of trust. And that is to purify our faith. To use them to teach us to trust God and that he is trustworthy. To, to use them to conform us into the image of the Lord Jesus. I love how Paul Tripp put it. He put, hardships in the hands of the Lord is a tool of his transforming grace. In love, he uses very bad things to produce very good things in us. 
and the very good things he produces in us at the core is quit trusting yourself. Quit trusting your gut. Quit following your emotional narrative that create in your own mind and heart and trust me. And this is where you find me. <clears throat> so that's a long introduction and first point. But it gets better. So here's, what, here's the response. After all this taunting, here's what happens. Hezekiah cries for help, says in your notes, from Isaiah. And the Lord says through Isaiah, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. I am trustworthy. Okay? Read with me after all the taunting, verse 21 through 37.1. Here's the response. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Hezekiah had said, don't open your mouth. Then Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. So what we have here is Hezekiah's three men walked away in silence. The three men tore their clothes. This deep, grievous expression of pain and mourning and distress and anxiety. The weight of the world literally was on their shoulders. We're going to die. The people of God are going to die. And the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Do you feel the tension? Then Hezekiah hears it, and immediately, this is a big deal, he tears his royal garments, and he puts on like a burlap sack with a hole in it, which signals this deep mourning and pain. And here's what it says. The, the, Isaiah, the author, is telling us Hezekiah at this point is a marked man. He is marked by repentance, and he's marked by humility. And then Hezekiah enters in the house of the Lord. And here's what he does next, verses 2 through 4. You can read that on your own. It says, he gathered the civil and religious leaders together, sends them to speak with Isaiah. And he says, tell Isaiah. <laughs> Hezekiah tells his representatives, tell Isaiah, pray to our God, pray to your God that he hears old big mouth Rabshakeh. Insult the Lord because our only hope is that God will act on behalf of his own glory. That is good theology. That is how we pray. He also prays for the remnant that is left, that they will persevere. This is not about Hezekiah. This is not about Hezekiah keeping his power. That's how most kings pray. This is about the glory of God and the people of God. And here's what he's saying here. <laughs> Hezekiah is saying, look, we don't deserve to live in light of our track record up to these last 14 years. We deserve to die. We deserve to be red mud in between the toes and sandals of the Syrians. But for your namesake, would you save us? 
Does that sound like the cross? We don't deserve the cross. We don't deserve salvation. But God saves us for his own glory. We are his workmanship. We are, we are signs of his grace. And then in 5 through 7, Hezekiah asked Isaiah to pray. Okay? But Isaiah doesn't pray. So Hezekiah says, Isaiah, would you pray that God would deliver us and save us? But the text tells us Isaiah doesn't pray. And he doesn't need to because God has already spoken on the matter. In Isaiah chapter 10 and a few other places, Isaiah has said, God has said specifically to Isaiah. And Isaiah communicated to the people that what? The Syrians would experience the rod of God's anger. They're going down. So Isaiah doesn't pray. He just acts. And he says, do not fear. You can stand firm. I have spoken, says the Lord. I've spoken what I'm going to do to the Syrians. I've heard them mock me. And here's what's going to happen. The Lord is going to make Sennacherib hear a rumor. Every time I think of rumor, I think of veggie tales. The, the rumor weed, right? He's going to send a rumor weed to Sennacherib that will make him go back home to Assyria where he will die by his own sword. Now here's what I want to ask us in terms of application. How do we, what do we do? How do we do when scripture is clear on a subject? When God in his word clearly speaks. We're not talking about doctrines that divide, that can be confusing. We're talking about clear commands, exhortations, clearly laid out in the scripture. How do we, how do we respond to them? Do we say, oh Lord, help me, help me understand that you tell us to live in biblical community because isolation will kill us every time. Is that what we pray about? God wants to say, you don't have to pray about that. I love you praying, but I've already told you. How about time and talent and treasure? We mentioned that this morning. He wants you to live for eternity, live for the next life. What does that look like to leave a spiritual legacy starting in your own home? Very clear. How about when the scriptures over and over and over, God says, meet with me. He pleads us to meet with him, to open this book and see that it is a light into our path. <laughs> he says, get to know me here. And we go, no, I'm good. Very clear. How about share your faith? that we would open our mouths, shaking but with boldness, and tell about the beauty and preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what they might say about us. And we say, no, I'm good. Lord, should I share my faith today? <laughs> Versus, Lord, if you'll give me a chance today, 
I'm yours. My tongue is yours. Wouldn't it be great, speaking of myself, I know it's human struggle, but that I would do, act upon what I already know to do. Very clear. Scripture is spoken. Here's what we do, though. I'll say it again because it's true of our struggle. And that is we just go with our gut. We quit following your feelings and your gut. Doesn't mean you, you got to say what you feel. I'm fine with that. But there's nothing to follow. God's word is spoken. Then thirdly, here's what happens in the story, in the narrative. Sennacherib taunts the living God. He says, <laughs> he says I will destroy him. I would destroy the living God like I did all the other gods. Here's how it plays out. You can read verses 8 through 13. We see the rumor take place. Rabshakeh all of a sudden leaves Jerusalem and rejoins Sennacherib and the main army who were fighting in the city of Libna, it says, 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Because he had heard, there's the rumor, that Sennacherib had left Lachish and needed to help against the king of Egypt. So this rumor goes out, they need to go back home, Egypt's invading, and they need to fight. Not true, because Egypt has a sick, weak army, never known for its strong army. But this rumor starts it, they both leave, so you have this divinely inspired rumor. And I love how one writer puts it, he says, The Lord of history knows when a whispered word is enough to control the kings of the earth. So Sennacherib goes back home to protect Assyria, but can't leave before he intimidates the southern kingdom. And basically in verses 10 through 13, he says to Hezekiah, don't trust your God. I'll be back. It won't be long before you hear the hoofs of my horses coming to kill you. Look around. Look at all the other nations. They went down. Your 46 cities are gone. There's one city left. I'm coming back, Jack, and I'm coming for you hard. And that's where he leaves it. And then we get to a beautiful, beautiful place. Roman number four says, Hezekiah cries for help from the living God. Save us so your name will be made great among the earth. Look at verses 14 through 20. 14 through 20 of chapter 37. Hezekiah receives this letter from the hand of the messengers of Sennacherib and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, he's praying now, who is enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You are alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. I see that, he says, and have cast their gods into fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know 
that you are alone the Lord. <laughs> Do you notice that Hezekiah has changed? He's not going through Isaiah now to meet with the Lord. He's going straight to the Lord. I know nothing wrong with calling people, but there is a point in time where as I mature in my faith that I, I don't need to call money, I'm going to the Lord. Hezekiah does that. I'm reminded of Hebrews 4 where the passage says, the writer of Hebrews says for us to come boldly to the throne of grace because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. So he no longer going to Isaiah. He's going straight to the throne of God. He takes the letter. He reads the letter, walks straight to the house of the Lord, and spreads it out before the Lord. He said nothing to the messengers. One writer put it this way. He said, he who believes does not panic. He knows that God knows what the letter says, but he still spreads it out before him. Like, can you feel that this, this greatest need ever, this incredible anxiety and stress for the glory of God and the people of God, it's all a stake. He lays the message out, we're going to kill you before the throne of God. It is a beautiful picture of desperation. I thought about us. I thought about me, honestly, this week. Powerful part in this passage that God knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's going on there, all that we have. And our job is to open up our chest and lay that out before him and his word. <clears throat> Honestly, for me, it's been some of the hardest moments in my life, but the sweetest moments with the Lord. Think back early in our career with Campus Crusade. At zero money in the bank and savings. No paycheck came in because we had low support. And all the whispers of people saying you're wasting your life begging people for money working for the kingdom. Go get a real job. And lay those bills out before the Lord. And say, oh Lord, oh Lord. I remember those moments where you take, where your kids in the hard places and you take your kids and you lay prostrate on the floor and you lay them out before the Lord. And you say, oh Lord, incline your ear to me. Open your eyes. Be attentive to me. If you don't do something, we're in a bad place for a long time. I thought about taking my struggle with rage before the Lord. Lord, something has to change. Will you help me? Will you send somebody to help me? And I meet Gary Sweeten, who I meet with for seven years. Think about taking my marriage before the Lord. What happened here to, is that the beautiful promises of God awaken the heart of Hezekiah. 
He pleads the promises of God back to God. His first words are not, I need, but, oh, Lord, you are great. (laughs) You are powerful. He prays the attributes of God back to God. God, you're sovereign over Assyria. You are the king. He begins with worship. I say to us, God delights to hear his children exalt him for who he is. It's why doctrine is important because you can't exalt God for who he is if you don't know him from his word, if you make him up in your own mind. Verses 17 through 19, as I said, he says, give me your eyes and ears, direct your attention to me. They're saying you're just like the gods of wood and stone. Show them that you're not. Intervene and deliver us. He's desperate. He's banking it all on God. God does not like it when his people that he's been so merciful to, who is rescued, who he's saved, act like they are the captain of their own ship. He loves his people to be desperate people because he is jealous for his own glory. And he's the only one where jealousy isn't a negative thing. And he says, deliver us so that the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. I think about the psalmists, the prophets, the apostles, Jesus. They all prayed that God would act so his name would be great among the nations. <laughs> Our greatest appeal and plea to God is that God would glorify himself for his name's sake. And here's what happens the Lord hears his prayer. 37. Verses 36 through 8 through 38. The angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians. The town woke up and there's 185,000 dead people. I thought the irony, the irony of this passage that Hezekiah goes to the house of his God and received help. Sennacherib goes to the house, it says in those last two verses, of his God and was killed by his own two sons, by his own sword. The promises of God always come true. So the so what this morning is this. Dr. Paul Tripp says at the top of your outline, rest is found not in knowing what's coming next, but in trusting the one who controls what's coming next. I ask you, like I ask myself in preparation, if all, if all of the things you trust in were knocked out from you, all the things, all the human props, money, job, looks, power, if it's all taken away tomorrow, because it will be one day, can't take it with you, Ain't no U-Hauls allowed in heaven. They're all knocked out. Where's your trust? Functional trust. Ask that question because we usually obey that which we trust. Take a minute to ask that question this morning.